0: chapter 1, 17, uh, starting picking up where we left off verse, in verse 17. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk a bit about some really dramatic comparisons in Scripture, uh, comparing really uh, in this passage uh, the eternal with the, temp- with the temporal. Uh, we're also going to see just a really dramatic contrast in sort of our complexly beautiful relationship that we have with God. Uh, That's... On one hand, He's our loving Father. On another hand, He's a mighty, awesome, holy judge. And uh, it is really just a unique thing, a very interesting thing, to really think about uh, the beauty and the complexity uh, of our relationship with God and really to understand the various aspects. We're going to talk about a little bit of that this morning as well. Uh, so if you join me in 1 Peter, picking up in verse 17, we're going to read through uh, the rest of the chapter. And then we'll see if we can unpack it a little bit more. Uh, So 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as a flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower fails away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning and for this passage here in First Peter that we can um, analyze and study and learn more about you and just your amazing character and who you are, as well as uh, what you would ask of us and how we should respond and, and many great answers uh, to many of the great questions that have uh, plagued man throughout history, Lord, we can find here in your truth and in your word. Thank you that your word is faithful. So I ask that you would speak to us this morning as we as we go through this and that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and Lord, most of all that we would walk away from your changed, just a little bit more close to you and a little uh, having grown a little bit more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, as I mentioned, we have some contrasting themes here as we read. Uh, honestly, we're, we're not going to make it, I don't think, through the end of the chapter. Uh, I, had, again, ambitiously att- attempted to put that together, but I don't think we're going to make it. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and give it a shot, though. But uh, there are some, as we you can see, some great contrasts in this section about the incorruptible versus the corruptible, the eternal versus the temporal, um, comparing how we were redeemed versus uh, earthly things. And so we're going to look a little bit at that this morning. But first of all, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 17 and just walk through it and see what God would have for us this morning. So in verse 17, it says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout your time of your stay here in fear. So if you call on the Father, and that word call... uh, means to invoke or to, to ask a request from, uh, to appeal to. And so, in other words, it's saying, if you're going to call on God, if you're going to call Him your Father, um, you need to understand that have, that has certain implications. That has certain, that, that has, there's certain things that go along with that. If you're going to call on Him, understand, as we talked about last week, He judges everyone's work. He judges your life. If you're going to call Him your Father, you need to act like His son. You need to act like His daughter. And so, understand, if you're going to call on Him, remember, He judges, and without partiality, and that should tell us something. Uh, first of all, God has no favorites. Uh, I love that about God. Uh, there is no favorites with Him. He no, has no bias. Uh, he has no preference. Um, you know, we as people, we're not exactly the same that way, are we? You know, we have, we have bias. We, everything we do, we, we take our, our opinions and our bias and our preconceived notions into it. Um, you know, we also many times take our own selfish wants and desires into things. But regardless of our, uh, of our financial status or, or anything else, our personality traits, you know, we all have uh, different personalities, right? We, you know, get along with certain people, other people not so much. And uh, there's some people we, we invite to dinner, others we conveniently forget to invite. Uh, you know, because we have, we have those preferences, don't we? And we have to, if we're honest, we'll admit that. But it's so good to know that that's, God's not that way. There's no one here this morning and there's no one on planet earth that he wouldn't love to spend time with. That he wouldn't love to have at his marriage feast uh, of the Lamb at the, at, in those last days when we celebrate with him. There's no one that annoys him. <laughs> more, more, At least not more than another. <laughs> We're all the same in his eyes. He judges us equally. No one gets a special pass either. There's, there's no one that, uh, uh, you know, he kind of turns a blind eye to. And again, we as people, we're not like that. We can see someone uh, do something that is wrong or inappropriate. And if they happen to be sort of a good friend of ours or someone we really like, we kind of go, eh, it's not a big deal. But then if someone else does that very thing and they don't have that same special favor with us, we judge a little more harshly, don't we? We react a little differently. And it's interesting how the same sin looks different on different people. Or it certainly looks different on others than it does on ourselves, doesn't it? And, and so we have a very hard time being impartial, being unbiased. And again, it, to me, it is such a relief to know God's not like me. He's not biased. He's not, he doesn't have favorites and he doesn't have uh, those that he picks on more than others. He is equal and, and he doesn't grade on a curve. You know, I have to be honest. When it comes to my family, I'm a little biased. Um, they're my favorites. I don't know what to tell you, but uh, my kids are better than your kids. No, I'm just no I just—they're—they're they're my kids, right? So I'm gonna—I'm gonna see them a little differently. I'm gonna love—I'm gonna love them a little differently, and they're—they're uh, they're gonna be a little more special to me. Uh, you know, uh, and that's just how it is. And we're all that way. Um, but I love that God is impartial towards all of us. He judges us equally. And, and it says, if we call on the Father, and we, conduct, we have to conduct ourselves here on this earth in fear. Um, we have to understand that we will face a judgment one day. And, and he talking, in talking here about judgment, he's talking about the works that are judged. And I thought it was interesting in looking at how it says we're supposed to conduct ourselves in fear. Um, this is one of those contrasts we're going to look at this morning in our relationship with God. Um, you know, fear, uh, this word fear here, you know, uh, there's a few different words that are translated fear throughout scripture. Uh, some are translated more in a reverence, in a sense of a reverence, and some are genuinely what we even think the word to mean, fear. And, and I want to make sure we're getting an accurate understanding of, of how we're supposed to view God and, and how we're supposed to live and how that should motivate us. Um, but I understand here, uh, this word in this particular instance is actually translated fear. And actually means literal fear, not just simply reverence of God or having great respect for him. And so when I saw that and when I studied that, that kind of made me wonder, well, why would we really want to have sort of this actual fear of God? Well, you know, there's a healthy amount of fear we need to have of a holy God that is all-powerful and that does hold the power of life and death. As Jesus said, don't fear man uh, who can just destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy, cast both body and soul into hell. That's where you should fear, and there's a certain amount of healthiness to that fear. And you know, I think we see in our society today a real lack of fear and, and respect. And the re, what's the result of that? What is the result? We see the result of that. It's just it's, it's selfishness, it's chaos, it's it's um, that disrespect results in just a complete lack of, of order, a complete lack of of. Um, of uh, just real honor uh, and we see sort of there's this doing away with standards and with right and wrong because of that lack of fear. The restraint is cast off and, and so there is a healthy amount of fear that we are supposed to have and we're not supposed to take the blood of Christ lightly. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so here's a great passage, Hebrews 12:28. if you're taking notes, that helps us contrast those two, that those two exist side by side. This word reverence is simply awe, or, or having really a humble shame facedness, as it describes in, in, um, uh, in Strong's Concordance, that it's really having this accurate perspective of who we are in light of who God is. Really understanding He's a great holy, perfect, almighty God and we are far from it. We are very far from it and we need to be humble and we need to have awe and reverence towards him. But then he also says, and godly fear. So there is a place for reverence but also accompanied by a healthy, godly fear. That is a caution or by implication, reverent piety or even dread, understanding the potential of judgment. Now, as redeemed children, as, as children of His, we don't have to fear anymore, do we? At least not the judgment. But at the same time, we still understand we worship and serve a holy and awesome God. To further bring into focus who God is, and I really, this is something that I, I, I want to share with you that I, I feel God really impressed upon my heart, is to bring back into focus the healthy fear of God, um, to really re- revere Him and to honor Him for who He is. You know, sometimes I think we get a little too casual with our relationship with God. And I, I think the challenge that God would have for us this morning in his word is is to have a healthy fear, to enter into his presence with a healthy fear, a fear, a, a, a respect that honors that he is, he is almighty God. He made us. He's in control of all things. And sometimes we get a little arrogant, don't we? We get a little full of ourselves or we get a little too casual thinking that he's just kind of our buddy and he's a whole lot more than that. And, and I want to encourage you in this. And I'm going to read from Hebrews, and once again, in chapter 10, that just brings into focus the very reality of, of who God is in His holiness and in, in, in His ability to judge and, and just understanding what, that, what effect that should have on us. But again, I want to return to, after that, understanding who we are as His children and the freedom that brings. So Hebrews 10:26, if you're following along. I'm going to read from there. And admittedly, this is a pretty controversial passage, so we're not going to try and dissect it completely this morning. But it does give some perspective to us on this subject. Hebrews 10.26 For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you suppose, will, be, will, be, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot or counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. You know, and this, again, we, we touched on this a little bit last week in the core message of salvation. The motivation of salvation is not just, you know, a happy, healthy, wealthy life here, is it? No, this is this is deliverance from this judgment we're talking about here. This is a fearful thing that's awaiting those who have not received this gift of salvation this precious price that was paid on our behalf to shirk that is a fearful thing to treat it as if it's no big deal is a fearful thing and understand the context here this is in hebrews this is addressed not just to the church in general but to uh, christians from the perspective of the jewish culture it's it's addressed to the hebrews and it's speaking of um speaking to that audience It's, it's from that perspective and there's, an, there's some important things we need to understand in this passage because it is very controversial. It seems to appear that uh, having been saved, having been sanctified, we can somehow then, uh, through our works, lose our salvation. And This is one of the passages that are wrestled over between the Calvinistic and the Armenian camp. Um, verse 29, I think, if compared with some other scriptures, helps open it up to us. It says, and how much worse a punishment will be he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot or counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. I'd like to compare that with Revelation three five, And it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out His name from the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. This verse is is one of those verses that I love because it really tells us very clearly salvation was meant for all. It says he will not blot out his name from the book of life, which clearly indicates that the name was written there, that it was already written. And when Christ died on our behalf, that sacrifice was sufficient for all, wasn't it? That that officially remedied the sin problem for every human being, past, present, and future. Done. Paid. and And according to this verse the book of life had everyone's name in it that whose price was paid. It was paid, it was said, it was done, and that included everyone. And you actually have to have your name erased by refusing to accept that price that was paid on your behalf. How crazy is that? It isn't like we have to go through all these steps and struggles and works to get our name put in that book. It's already there. And we have to just reject accepting that and then it's blotted out. But, this this fearful understanding of of God's judgment and His holiness should should have a certain effect on our lives. It should cause, as this passage says, even those of us who are sanctified, even those of us who are already redeemed, it should cause a certain amount of fear and reverence in our behavior and in how we act. And so we see Peter here is giving us an additional reason for holy conduct. You know, last time we talked about uh, how he said, "Be holy." as I am holy. And he was quoting those verses from Leviticus. One of the motivations that we're given for holy living and conduct was that God, the God we serve is holy and perfect and just. And now we're given another reason. And we're given an, actually a couple more reasons. Because in verse 18, in First Peter 1, he goes on to say, knowing this fear that we have and understanding that, that God does not judge with partiality, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and spot. Peter brings to our attention the very fact that redeeming us was no small thing. It came at a very high cost. And so this is is reason number three for holy living and obedient living, understanding at what high a price uh, we were redeemed, that it was no small thing. It wasn't silver or gold. It wasn't some material thing. You know This high price paid on our behalf is something that should really cause us to act in gratitude, to act in, in humble acceptance of what was done for us. This word redeemed also can be translated to ransom, something to loosen with. What's interesting is this word redeemed is actually um, derived from the root word lutron, uh, which means something to loosen with that is, a redemption price or a ransom. In other words, it's like you have this noose around your neck and it's been taken off. Um, but it's like a ransom. And, and to un- truly understand what's being said here really kind of direct, redirects us back to the other contrasting part of God, which is His incredible and immeasurable love. We, we see this fearful judgment and the, sort of the sight of God that, quite frankly, is scary. And, and understanding He's holy and he's, and he's just and He's going to judge one day but then we see this beautiful picture of His love for us, and how He redeemed us, and what price He was willing to pay on our behalf. He says we were not redeemed or ransomed with earthly treasure, nothing corruptible or temporary, uh, but with with something that was eternal. You know, knowing God was willing to pay so high a price on our behalf, should dramatically affect us in a couple ways. One we've already talked about. It should cause us to, to, uh, to obey and to live in holiness. It should cause a humbleness. But also it should tell us something about God's view of us. Um, being ransomed, being redeemed, indicates, first of all, that we were captive, that we were prisoners. And in John eight thirty four, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. So first of all, we have to recognize that we were prisoners, that we, that we needed to be set free. You know, um, There are those many many who have, who have not yet been saved, who have been set free. People don't like to recognize that they were, they're they a slave to sin, or they don't even realize that they're a captive, that they're not free. And even in this passage in John 8, uh, the Pharisees that Jesus was talking to refused to acknowledge that they were slaves to sin. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. But our Father, our loving, eternal, forgiving, and unfailing Father, was willing to pay whatever ransom necessary to rescue us. Whatever ransom necessary. And you know what? Silver and gold wasn't going to cut it. Nothing of earthly value was going to cut it. You know, and this we have to think of this in context of the historical times. You know, in those days they did have slaves, didn't they? They had the slave market. People were bought and sold with silver and gold in that day. That, that was commonplace. And if you had a debt, that was one of the ways to pay it, was to essentially be sold. And there was a price on your head and how how just utterly tragic and inadequate it is to, to, to put a, a physical price like that on, on a person. Say, okay, you're worth X amount of gold or X amount of silver, but that's how it was in that day in the slave market. You'd have these people up on up on the stand and this guy was worth more than that guy because his muscles were bigger or whatever, you know, but you had this value, this Very finite, very uh, insignificant value put on these humans' lives, these people's lives. And, And Peter is contrasting that with the price that was paid for us through Christ's blood, through Jesus, the Son of God himself, being sacrificed on our behalf. And I think one of the things that that should cause us to do is realize the value that God places on us. You know, God... He didn't, he didn't redeem us with uh, some, some trite, simple thing. He gave the most costly, the most, uh, the most infinitely valuable thing He could give on our behalf, His only Son. And that should tell you what you're worth to Him. That should tell me what I'm worth to Him. You know, and, and, it's, and it's crazy for us to try and comprehend, for me to try and comprehend how this fearful, holy God, at the same time, is so incredibly loving and cares so much and loves us so much that he's willing to pay so high a price for you and for me that he would give the most valuable thing that could possibly be given in the entire universe to redeem you and me. That's how much he cares for you. That's how much. That's how valuable he sees each of us. That's how incredibly valuable we are to him. And for those of us who, who tend to maybe think not so highly of ourselves, sometimes we beat ourselves up or we... Uh, you know, think we have very little worth. And, you know, I've met people like that who just are just down in the dumps and down on themselves and feel like, man, you know, uh, because of their past and because of what they've been through uh, and what they've done, that they have very little worth. And God doesn't see it that way, does he? Not so with him. We're incredibly valuable to him. And to think otherwise is to disregard what, the price that was paid the incredible price that was paid on our behalf. And Jesus goes on in John chapter 8 to tell us more about it. John chapter 8, verse 35 through 36 says, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How cool is that? What What an awesome picture. And to them in that day, it was a very vivid picture. It was as if he came to the slave market He saw you on the stand and he paid the price only to set you free. He didn't pay the price to make you a slave in his household. He didn't pay the price for you to be in temporary servitude to him. He paid the price to make you a son and a daughter, to give you an eternal inheritance and to give you freedom. How awesome is that? How huge is that? And if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. You know, I was reading uh, and listening to a bit of a documentary on uh, the sex trade here in America. There was uh, I get uh, updates from All Things Possible Ministries. Some of you are familiar with that ministry. Awesome ministry of Victor Marx. He reaches out to children in prisons, uh, troubled youth. He does some pretty amazing work in Iran, all over the place. A lot of high-risk stuff. And many of those missions are to rescue uh, the innocent, to rescue children from dangerous situations or even from ISIS itself. Uh, some pretty crazy things that he, he and his group do. Um, but one of the things that they are also on a mission to bring awareness to is the human trafficking and sex trade even here in America. Because a lot of times we look at other places and, and see how ugly it is and talk about it. But do we realize it's in our own backyard? And I was watching um, a little documentary they put together and they're talking about the urgency to rescue these girls and even young boys from this industry of being bought and sold as, as basically sex slaves uh, in this industry right here in America. And, and one of the things that they found is there's a very high urgency to get these children out of there as quickly as possible because the longer they're in there, the more difficult it was to get them out. <clears throat> and the reason for that, excuse me, <clears throat> the tragic reason for that was the longer they're in it, the more they became a slave to it mentally and emotionally, the more they felt like they could not be free. The more they felt like they could not have a life outside of it. And so it would actually, the, the biggest challenge in getting them out was the person themselves because they wouldn't leave. And, and how tragic and how horrible that is to see someone so caught in sin and what a picture of how sin enslaves us. It, it's just, it was so heartbreaking to, to watch and to read that documentary and even have some interviews of some young women who had been in prostitution and in these, uh, uh, really, these human trafficking situations. And they were so lifeless, looking in their eyes and seeing how they'd just been so robbed and were so enslaved. And that is what the enemy does, isn't it? That's what, that's what sin does, is it desensitizes and enslaves to where you don't even realize uh, where you're at. And Jesus holds... This freedom out, he paid the price, and we act like we're still slaves sometimes. And there's so many people here on earth that continue to live a life of a slave, not even realizing they've been set free. And even Christians are exhorted throughout Scripture, where you know uh, some of the letters of Paul writes to the Galatians and Ephesians, he exhorts them and says, "Listen, if you've been set free, quit acting like a slave to sin. You weren't set free to go back to your slavery." you are set free to walk in righteousness and holiness because in that is freedom. Because in in that is true life. Jesus said, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then the rest will be added to you. And true abundant life is found in that. But let's read on and talk about from what were we redeemed? What did God set us free from? And free to? First of all, it lists right here, Set free from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers. There's some other scriptures that we can cross-reference to get a more perspective on this, and some other things we're set free from. It says, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Well, what is the curse of the law? Well, real quickly, essentially what that's referring to, and we can read through, I encourage you to read through the chapter to get more of the context of that. But essentially, the curse of the law is really the, the realization that we can never fulfill the law in and of ourselves. And therefore, it merely is an instrument of condemnation in our lives. It is merely an instrument of judgment to point us to the need for a savior. And he redeemed us from that, having taken the punishment for us. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So we're redeemed from our aimless conduct received by tradition from the fathers, redeemed from every lawless deed, redeemed from the curse of the law, to be his own special people, zealous for good works. This aimless conduct, there's a couple ways that we can take this, and so I'm going to break it down a little bit. What is he talking about when he says this aimless conduct you received by tradition from your fathers? It's also translated the empty way of life that was handed down to you. Um, And I've read it uh, translated a couple different ways by commentators on on what is meant here. Um, This word, aimless conduct, is actually, if you translate it out, uh, refers to emptiness or vanity, something that's profitless. It also, by implication, refers to idolatry or vanity in idolatry. And so some have speculated, well, he's talking about idol worship here. You're, You're delivered from idol worship, which I could see how that could be possibly interpreted. But I think what is more clearly being spoken out as one of two things first of all for the pagan household for the non-jewish household it could be very well that that very thing idol worship or just simply having a heritage passed down from your family of just earthly pursuit uh, empty earthly fleshly pursuit where it's like you have this 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 heritage passed down to you where life is really meaningless and empty it's, it's kind of like ecclesiastes all is vanity that you can pursue all these things, accomplish all these things, and there's really no lasting value in any of it. And that's what you've been given. That's your inheritance. And that's what you're redeemed from. That worthless, vain, empty, uh, frustrating pursuit into something much better. But also for the Hebrews he was speaking to, for his fellow Jews he was speaking to there, it really can refer very directly to the law and the old covenant and how Really, that old covenant, as we read in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, uh, is simply a shadow of the new covenant and the good things to come. It wasn't ever meant to save and it was never enough. And they had taken the law that God had given and added to it all these hundreds of traditions and all of these little laws of man that just burdened and weighted people down and were worthless. They were fruitless and worthless. But they would go through all these motions in a human attempt to please God. It was their way of earning salvation. It was their way of earning God's favor. And they figured that they could put God in this box and go, well, if I just say these, say these words and go through these motions and fast on these days, God has to be happy with me. I've done, my, I've done my duty. I've done my due diligence. It's much like the Catholic Church where they have their Hail Marys and they show up and they do this, that, and the other. And then they live like hell the rest of the week. And it really doesn't matter. And it's as if you can, as if you can treat God like a genie in a bottle or something. And go, hey, I'll just do my magic recipe and I've got my golden ticket to heaven and now I can do whatever I want. Well, I think we've come far enough in, in First Peter to know that isn't true. Uh, that there must be a true, consistent evidence in your life that you're saved or not. So there's no denying that. But this deliverance, this redemption is from that worthless, vain pursuit of human tradition, of the law and all these burdensome things that the Jews were under. They're, they're striving and straining at all this effort to please God. They never could. It's worthless. It's, it's vain. It's empty. And quite honestly, um, much of it is like what is said in that passage in Hebrews, trampling uh, the blood of Christ underfoot. To return to the law, to return to a human effort to please God and to ignore the price that was paid on our behalf, that's, that's quite honestly, that's insulting to God. For us to seek to please him outside of the blood of Christ, outside of, to try and earn salvation and ignore, ignore the price of Christ that was paid on our behalf, that, that doesn't please God. That doesn't make him happy. And I think that honestly, this passage directly refer, can be directly correlated to Revelation where we read that uh, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? And you will say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. And we read that and we go, well, how is it possible that people were doing all these things and God would say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the blood of Christ that they were missing. They hadn't been redeemed. They're attempting to go around this incredible sacrifice, that was paid, this price that was paid on their behalf, saying, oh, I don't need that. I'm just going to earn salvation my way. Turns out that doesn't please God. And understandably so. We know we can read that Initially, and I know many times I struggle with that, well, how could God turn away someone who's doing all these good deeds in his name? But you know what? They were trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. They're going, well, I don't need Jesus. I can just earn it my way. Whoa. Do you realize now how God sees that as pretty insulting and pretty offensive to go, his son's blood wasn't what you need, that you can earn salvation some other way? That's not something he takes lightly. And I think if we look at the whole scripture, we understand why. He paid a great price on our behalf. And we need to take it for the gravity that it's meant to be taken with. A little bit more on the traditions uh, and the things that we're set free from. I love how Hebrews, uh, you know, I know we're spending a lot of time in Hebrews, but it seems there's, there's so much in there that really helps explain what we're talking about in First Peter And in Hebrews 9, I'll just read you a brief passage from here. It says the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. So in other words, while the law was in effect, the old covenant was in effect, there was no real way into the holiest of all. No one could enter into that holy of holies and commune with God. And it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. And so he's talking about that very thing, these empty traditions of man that they counted on and depended on. Say they were concerned with all these fleshly ordinances, all these things. But, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer or the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So in other words, if all these human traditions, all these fleshly prices that were paid for sin, if those were sufficient or supposedly sort of uh, accomplished uh, that purpose in a very minimal way, sort of tidied you over until the better thing came, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works and to serve the living God. And so that kind of hits the nail on the head there. There's all these dead works and all these things that we can try and do in an effort to please, and earn, please God and earn salvation or we can simply receive the gift that's given, the price that was paid, and as a result... God works in us, those good works and that that godly lifestyle and those things end up being the fruit of something that's already been accomplished in us as there's it can go one way or the other you know. Um, Let's read on in verse 20 through 21. It says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. From the beginning of time, God had this amazing and sort of mysterious plan of salvation and redemption. And in looking at it, it's really incredible to think about how from the beginning of creation, when he made everything perfect and good, he knew we were gonna sin. He knew the fall was coming, he knew he would have to do the he knew he would have to flood the earth, he knew his son was eventually gonna to have to die on our behalf. And all of this so that we could have a personal and real relationship with our Heavenly Father, so that there could be something there that was more than just He commands it and we do it. And you know a lot of it is beyond our understanding. A lot of it doesn't really even add up to us, why would God even do that? Why would He even create something He knew was going to reject Him? He knew it was going to cost so much. Why was that worth it to Him? And honestly, in some ways, that's a question I don't think we can answer. But it's something I'm pretty grateful for, that He loves us that much and that He was willing to take that kind of a risk on me and on you, uh, that He would pay that price so that we could have a meaningful and true loving relationship, a voluntary relationship with Him. But since the beginning of time, God knew what it was going to take. He knew the price He was going to have to pay for your salvation and mine. And as as it says here in verse 21, this is through Christ that we believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And I love how Peter brings to our attention Christ's incredible example of how we're supposed to live in bringing glory not to ourselves but to God himself. Jesus Christ himself being God brought glory to God the Father. Didn't bring attention to himself Himself, and the result of his life and work was to bring glory to the Father and he made that clear. So Peter in bringing this to our attention, is coming from the perspective of speaking to someone that did not have faith in God at all to now having faith and hope in God. And it's because of the resurrection and glorification of Christ. Uh, Christ himself, being the, being the Son of God, uh, gave us this perfect example of how a life should be lived in bringing God glory. But knowing that Christ rose from the dead truly changes everything. It's not enough that he died and paid the price for us, in other words. And Peter is saying here, yes, we've been redeemed at a very high cost and Christ's blood was shed for us. But he goes on to say, but it doesn't stop there. He also raised him from the dead. And through that we have hope in God and we have faith in God. And 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen helps helps emphasize the importance of the resurrection. It says, For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are all people most to be pitied. And so we have to take it past, okay, this price was paid. Jesus died for us, yes, but you know what? he also rose again. And that's where hope and new life comes. And he was the leader in that, because it says in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. He's the first of the resurrection, like the firstborn. He's the leader in it. For since death came through a man, being Adam, and resurrection of the dead came also through a man, being Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So the doctrine of the resurrection is is incredibly central. It's essential to our Christian faith. The doctrine of the resurrection is non-negotiable. We have to understand that Christ did rise from the dead. That is a historical fact. And it is something where if that isn't true then we're all we're all wasting our time here. We're all we're all completely wasting our time here. Paul just said that. If hey, if we're if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're all people most to be pitied. We're pretty, it's pretty pitiful what we're doing here. Because we, we if we don't have a living we don't have a living savior who rose from the dead then then uh, then it ended at the cross it ended at the cross and I love the testimony of of the apostles that we see throughout acts and and throughout these epistles that were written it gives me so much confidence in what we know to be true these people who died to to uh, to uh, share the message of the gospel. These people who died for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead refused to deny that he rose from the dead. And it cost them everything to refuse to deny that he rose from the dead. We can be pretty confident, we can be extremely confident that what we have is accurate historical proof. Um, Acts 3 talks about one of the accounts of such a thing where um, it says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. So he's speaking to the religious leaders. And it says, when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And in at least four or five times throughout Acts, we see this exact same phrase repeated, where he says... Christ rose from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. And in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. So he's, this is a story of how someone was healed in Christ's name, and he's speaking of how and why he was healed. He says, yes, faith. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So he's saying, listen, here's the result of it. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus died as was prophesied, as we know was meant to happen. He paid this incredible price for our sin, but it doesn't end there. We're witnesses to his resurrection and the hope and the new life that we can have in him. And he says, repent therefore. In other words, don't do nothing with this information. Repent. Turn from your sin. Be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So instead of your name being blotted out of the book of life, your sins are blotted out. How awesome is that? I think that's a better choice to make. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, we step over an incredible line when we receive that gift officially. That price that's already been paid, it's all done, we're set free from sin. But when we receive it, and we actually step from death into life, when we become spiritually alive, when we receive salvation, we receive that price, we go from that side of complete and utter fear and judgment in our relationship with God to now knowing our heavenly loving Father and to seeing the side of God that we want to see (laughs) The sight of God that we want to know is that He was the sight of God that was willing to pay an incredible, uh, infinitely valuable price for you and me. That He loved us that much, He placed that high of a value on us. So what do we do with that? The question is, well, if we've received it, then what does it mean as we continue to live out our life before Him here on this earth? And this morning, we're going to uh, take communion together and get the privilege of remembering what Christ did for us in a very tangible way and so as the elders or the um, ushers begin to prepare to pass out the elements of communion we're going to transition into just un- just remembering this very thing we're talking about that this incredible price was paid and we need to remember that in taking this that this speaks very much of the value that God places on us I so just want uh, to emphasize that this morning, uh, that yes, God is to be feared and God is holy, but He sees you and me as so incredibly valuable to Him, and He is willing to pay this incredible price. And as we take this and as we remember what Christ did for us, it's my prayer that we would all realize how precious we are to God. That as we as we drink this little cup, as we eat this little. Cracker, it's a symbol of our value and worth to our Creator. And I want to read to you from Luke a little bit about the story of the Last Supper, of the Passover, and of what we're, of of really the first time communion was instituted, because it illustrates for us what we're doing this morning. It says in Luke 22, starting in verse 14, When the hour had come, Jesus sat down with the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So they're sharing this one cup. They're sharing this one loaf of bread. And they're being unified in that. It's a symbol of all partaking in the same thing. And Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed and then they began to question among themselves, which of them who it was that would do this thing? Thank you. But what's even more amazing and more telling about the character of God, and about God's love towards us and about the character of Christ, is if we read a little further in this passage, in this story, about the first communion service, about the first time that they celebrated and remembered what, God was, what Christ was about to do for them, it says in verse 24, "Now there also arose a dispute among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest." And as I read this, I go, "Man, Jesus is sitting there telling them, this is the last time He's going to eat with them. He's about to suffer and die, and they're fighting about who's the greatest. Really? I mean, could there be a worse time for them to get in a little squabble as to which one's better than another? And if I were Jesus, I'd be a little irate. I'd be a little mad, a little upset. But I love how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond in anger. He just goes on to teach them, to lovingly teach them about what the kingdom of God is really about. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. But who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. So, you know, to me, that just really illustrates the incredible love of Christ and the reality that you know He didn't beat them up for their misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. He said, no, look at my example I'm setting. This is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what greatness looks like, is to serve. And he served us. He made himself even lower than us in serving us and in dying on our behalf. And so by participating in communion together, we're remembering Christ, remembering the sacrifice, but we're also remembering his example and his teaching. We're remembering the, what he showed us and how we should live, how we should love one another, which we're going to get into next week. But we are identifying with by by doing this, we're identifying ourselves as his disciples, and as such, we're claiming to follow him, to follow in his footsteps, and to walk as he walked. We're declaring that intention, and so I want to encourage you this morning as we partake of this together, um, to be thinking in that regard, thinking of our value first of all to our Lord but also what it means to identify with His example and to walk in His footsteps and to truly live as His disciples. Because we are partaking of this as His disciples, as His followers. So if you'll join me as we pray before we partake. Heavenly Father, I I thank You for the sacrifice that You paid on our behalf. I thank You for Your willingness to serve us to come down and to not think it robbery that You would be Not glorified as God, but to wash our feet and to give us the example we needed of true humility and service, true greatness in your kingdom. And I pray that you would help us to be truly great in your kingdom in this manner. We thank you for the value that you place on us. Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand why you would love us that much, why you would consider us so valuable that you would pay a price equivalent to the most valuable thing in all the universe on our behalf. But Lord, we graciously and humbly accept and Lord, we want to honor you in remembering what you did for us. To not take it lightly, to not take it frivolously, but to rejoice in it and then to do with it what you meant for us to do with it, that it would have a true impact on how we live, how we love one another. May we serve you in serving one another. And so Lord as we take these I thank you for the price you paid and for the salvation that we have in you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.